sins. It's been a fascinating uh, look so far. And, and, and uh, from a pastoral standpoint, just studying these sins has been pretty amazing. Uh, just expanding on them and looking at them in ways that I'd never thought of before. And as I thought of this one, uh, the one that we're going through now, it's Envy. I was reminded of a movie that I saw as a younger man uh, called Amadeus. I don't know if any of you had seen it. It was done in 1984. And and the movie starts off, it's a very fascinating look at uh, Mozart's, uh, the composer's life. And in, in this movie, it begins with this old man who is dying in, in kind of an old age home. And he had tried to take his own life. And he's really on his deathbed. Uh, and he ended up surviving, but yet he's still dying. And he calls for a priest to confess his sins to. And as he is talking to this young priest, uh, he, he, he mentions that he had killed a man once. And the man wants to know, well, who was it? And he goes, it was Mozart. And he starts to tell the story of Mozart as well as his own life. He says, many years ago, I was actually a very famous composer in Vienna. This is, takes place in Vienna, Austria. And the, uh, he asked the priest, have you ever studied music? And he says, yes, uh, a little in my youth. And, and then Salieri sits at the piano and he goes, do you recall this song? And he plays it. And the, and the priest says, no, I'm sorry, I've not heard of it. And he plays another one. And the, the priest says, oh, I'm sorry, I've not heard of it. And he goes, well, wait a minute. What about this one? And he plays a song. Bum, 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 bum. Bum, bum, bum. And then the priest starts to hum it. He recognizes the song. And he gets, he gets singing it faster and faster and faster. And he smiles and he says, hey, that's lovely. I, I, I didn't know you wrote that. That's just wonderful. And he goes, I didn't. He goes, that was Mozart. And, and he, he begins to tell this story of this, this uh, man who came along and really decimated his life. I mean, he, he was a, a composer who worked, Antonio Salieri is the, the guy's name, and he's talking about Mozart. He says, I started off as a young man, and I worked from nothing to work my way all the way up to become the court composer for the emperor of Austria. But then he encountered Mozart, someone who was so amazing, had such an amazing ability and, and it bothered Salieri because though the crowds loved him, he recognized that Mozart was so much more superior and it tortured him. And he, he's actually angry at God through this entire thing. It's his interaction with God that's fascinating because he says, God, you've given me this desire to make music known and you use this vile, perverted, infantile little boy. And, and there's one moment where he takes a cross and he puts it in the fire. And he says, he goes, you and I are now enemies. You've given this guy this great ability. And you've given me nothing more than the ability to recognize it. So you and I are enemies from this moment forth. And, and uh, he goes, I, I block you. I will resist you. I don't want to have anything to do with you as long as I live. I swear it. He's angry because really he was envious of Mozart. And he is, he is tortured by it. And it's, it's interesting as we get into envy and we see, uh, as, as I really started to look at this and understand this sin, I found myself overwhelmed because it is so pervasive in every aspect of our culture. And that movie represents it so much that this guy is tortured by what this other man had. And it drove him to ridicule Mozart when he was away from him, to bring him down, to, to totally stop his performances in public, to keep him from receiving students. He was so envious of him that he did everything in his power to bring him down. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're a lot like that. We have our neighbor across the street who got that new car or that new job or that person who works next to you got that promotion or pay raise that you didn't get. 
or that classmate or that person that works alongside you in the factory, when they, they seem to have something that you don't, you want to bring them down. You say, why not me? I deserve that. And envy is pervasive because it can disguise itself in all different ways. I mean, it can even be within churches, being within pastors as, as they see what another pastor has or another church has. And uh, I mean, we have it everywhere. It permeates all of our world today, this envy that can drive us to do disastrous and such destructive things. But the Bible speaks to it as it does to every aspect of our human condition, and shows us how we are to identify envy. We can see what it is and what it will do to us. We also can see how we are to leave it behind and and the solution we have to combat envy. So today we're going to do another case study. We're going to look at the life of two sisters, Rachel and Leah. We're going to see within their lives how envy played out and what it did. And then we're going to reflect on what the scripture says on how we can avoid and get rid of envy in our lives. But before we go any further, let's pause and ask God's blessing on our message time. Our Father and our God, we come before you right now as your servants, your people. Lord, we know how prone we are to disobedience. Lord, you know the depth of our hearts and our depravity. Lord, you know how quickly we can envy someone to bring them down so we can bring ourselves up. And Lord, we ask that you be in our message time today, that you might open your word as you have promised to do every time that it is read, every time that it is preached. And Lord, we pray that it might accomplish the purpose for which you have intended it. So open wide our hearts to the the truth of who you are and what you want us to be and what you want us to do. We pray your blessing on us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we jump right into this text, we are in Genesis chapter 30. And in order for us to understand this, what's called the green-eyed monster, Shakespeare actually called it that, that it's a monster that's torturous to us, we have to really get, enough, first of all, a definition of what envy is. Uh, we can describe it all we want, but we need to get kind of a, a working definition to describe what envy is. And that's the first point. We need, first point that we need to write down. We need to learn how to define it. Define envy. And here's how I've defined it, and you can write this down. It's a feeling of discontent and resentful longing aroused by what someone else has. It is a feeling of discontent and resentful longing aroused by what someone else has. It's a pretty simple definition, a feeling of discontent. It's, it's resentful that someone else is being blessed and you are not what they have. And it's, uh, it, it's really played out within these two sisters. Now, let me elaborate and tell you the story of these two sisters. Not only are they sisters, they're sister wives. Uh, Rachel and Leah were under the guardianship of their uncle, a guy by the name of Laban. And uh, Jacob, who is a distant relative, came to end up working with Laban, and he falls in love with Rachel. And so he asked Laban, especially as customary at this time, for uh, Rachel's hand in marriage. And Laban agrees, and he gives a bride price. Uh, many of those come from African traditions. There's a bride price. We haven't had a negotiation of a bride price here not too long ago uh, for one that was attending the church. And it's interesting, just different cultures, how they do different things. And it still goes on in many parts of the world. And Laban's price was seven years of service. And he said, you can have her if you work seven years for me. So Jacob's like, no big deal. I can totally do that. He works seven years. And on the honeymoon night, Laban pulls the switcheroo. 
And rather than, as he goes into the bridal chamber, he, uh, and after they consummate the union, he wakes up the next day, and it must have been a really dark night. He wakes up going, whoa, that's not who I expected. Uh, you are not Rachel. You are Leah, who is the, uh, is the older. Uh, says she was weak-eyed. People don't know exactly what that means. If she maybe had, it could have been cross-eyed, maybe had bed vision, or she wasn't a very attractive woman. And, and he was angry. He wakes up, and it's not the woman that he worked for. And he tells it to Laban, you double-crossed me. And Laban says to him, he's like, hey, uh, the older gets married before the younger. Work for me another seven years, and I'll give you Rachel. And he agrees, and then he gives him Rachel as a wife. Now, polygamy is often seen within the Scripture, uh, and it was uh, practiced within the ancient world, uh, but it was never considered something to be a blessing of God. Matter of fact, anytime you ever see polygamy played out, it never ends well. There's nothing but strife and frustration that goes on. But we see these sisters become wives of Jacob. And he has Leah, and then he has Rachel. Now, he loves Rachel, but Rachel is barren. She can't have kids. Leah, he doesn't love, but with her, she's got kids. Now, you already know in your family how much competition there was between your and your siblings. Now, let's amp that up a little bit. Not only are you and your siblings in competition throughout your life, but imagine now you're married in the same household, if you will. Now you're amplifying it, and it's sisters to boot. I mean, I have four children, and I've seen that it's a battle. Sometimes I I feel like I've walked in the middle of a war when they're going back and forth with one another, and they're fighting with one another. It's, it's just, there's one envious of this one. He has this. I don't. I want it. And, and she has this, and I don't. I want it. And they're constant bickering back and forth. Now you have this played out with sisters with the same husband. There's going to be massive competition. So we see these, these sisters uh, fighting with one another. Leah's having kids, but she's not loved. Rachel's not having kids, but she is loved. Rachel is envious of her sister, because she's having children. Leah, in many ways, is envious of her sister because she's loved and she's not. This is a classic case in the study of envy between these two sisters. So as we really get into our text, we need to really dissect and see through them um, what envy is. So I want to dissect envy a little bit. I want to put it on the table, and I want to cut it open, and I want to see really what it is. And we've, we have to define it, and then we have to dissect it. So let's dissect it a little bit. First of all, look in verse 1 with me. Look in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Now, I really thought on that verse. How do you envy someone? How does someone know it? Well, you really don't. Envy is unlike other sins. Uh, It's not one that's out in the open. It's in the heart. Really, it's secretive. It's secretive. That's the next point you need to write down, letter A in your notes. We discover that envy is most often secretive. I like how one person said, it said that the envious person resents another person. When you resent someone, that's really in the heart. They resent another person's good gifts because they are superior to his or her own. It's not just that the other person is better. It is that by comparison, their superiority makes you feel your own lack, your own inferiority more acutely. See, that's what bothered Salieri with Mozart. Though the crowds loved him, he, he recognized that Mozart was so much more superior. Even though the crowds couldn't, t- uh, didn't follow Mozart as much, and the, the courts of the time didn't notice his genius, Salieri did. And it made him feel so less 
than Mozart. Matter of fact, it's played out in one of the, the most brilliant scenes in the movie. Salieri actually writes a, a, a bit of a march uh, for the introduction of Mozart as he's being introduced to the emperor. And as he's walking in, the, the emperor decides to play this little march. And he's playing it. It's a very simple tune. And uh, they meet one another. And after a period of time, uh, the, the, the emperor hands him this piece of paper that uh, Salieri had composed. It has the, the, the song on it, the march that he had written. And Mozart goes, oh, I don't need that. He goes, why? He goes, I've got it already here in my head. He goes, from hearing it one time only? And he goes, yeah, I believe so, your majesty. Yeah, I believe so. And he goes, show us. And he sits down on, on, he sits down on the, the keys, and he starts to play it perfectly. And he gets near to the end of it. He goes, that doesn't quite work, does it? And he starts playing with it, and it gets better and better as he plays it. And, and, and he just continues to play this and create this beautiful piece that's so much bigger than Salieri's right there. And Salieri, you could see it, the camera just cuts to his face as he realizes he is in the presence of genius. And all it's doing is showing his me- mediocrity and showing his inferiority to Mozart. And it begins to torture him. And it's something that's in the heart. It drives us. And, and, and it's different than all other sins. See, when you lust, there might be a, a pleasure for a moment, or even gluttony. You can enjoy it for a bit. But envy, there's no enjoyment at all whatsoever. It's known as the, the sin of sorrow, the sin of sadness. That, that who anyone who does it makes them sorrowful. And that's the next point we need to write down. Envy is sorrowful. Many of the ancients called it the sad sin. And while many of the other sins have a passing moment of pleasure, such as lust or gluttony, as I mentioned, envy has no enjoyment. As Thomas Aquinas, the scholar, wrote, that sin of wishing that things were other than they are with your life, which even when you think about it, is sad. See, it's that sin of wishing that things were other than they are with your life. Have you ever had that? You'd say, my life could just be different, but, or if I had their life, but, my life would be different if, if I had that in their life or I had that opportunity, then I would be happy or I could have achieved that if I had that opportunity. See, that's why it's so pervasive. It falls within all of our lives. That sin of wishing that things were other than they are with your life. And it might be that you're single going, if I was married, or maybe if you're married saying, if I was single, Or if I didn't have children, or if I wouldn't have done that when I was young, or if I just would have went to college, or if I just didn't do that, and I wish my life were different. Now, it's not wrong to to have, I mean, to regret that you could have done things differently. It's wrong when you let that creep in to bring other people down and blame them or want their ill to be done so you can bring yourself up. That's the problem that we have. And that makes a person sad. When you start thinking about what your life could have been, that can be completely depressing and can be paralyzing. And is often found in comparison. That's the thing about this sin. It's in comparison and competition with those who are in similar situations in life. Similar situations in life. This isn't about Bill Gates here. Bill Gates is too far away. This is what uh, I heard one man call an area code sin. It's a small town sin. It's not about that person who lives far away. It's that person that lives next door. It's the person who's in a similar situation or uh, of life or the same status or maybe the same age group or maybe in your same occupation. Someone that is close to you. 
And it's a byproduct of living so close to a set of other people that one is constantly tempted to make leveling comparisons. Those who are too far above you are so far above you that you cannot imagine yourself in their positions. Why would I envy the achievements and acquisitions of Bill Gates? He's too far away from me. But the guy in the next cubicle or the woman who lives next door, now that's where the comparisons begin. Envy happens to those who are similar to us, who live in our neighborhood, who we work with, we go to school with. Maybe they share even the same occupation, or they're in the similar life stage, or they have the similar education or experience. It's a communal sin. Now, you see that with Rachel and Leah, that they are in similar situations. They're similar ages. They're, in, they're both wives that are in some ways competing with one another, and they're comparing with one another. She's loved, but she has kids. And so there's this trying to one-up with one another, this constant sibling rivalry that's going on. So it occurs not only with those in similar situations, but I've also noticed that envy begins with those who are usually, though not always, usually of the same gender. Of the same gender. See, while you can envy someone of the opposite gender, we most often envy those who are a lot like us. Men envy men and women envy other women. As one author noted, and at first when I read this quote, it struck me. But the more I thought about it, the more true that I realized it was. He said, it all begins in the showers after the junior high basketball game. People start comparing with one another. That's where it goes. We see it all the time with our children. Maybe you're a teenager that's here today. You know that all the, all, all the time. But I really remember noticing it as a kid. When you see physical changes start to happen. You could see with women, I wish I had her hair. A girl that has beautiful straight hair that flows goes, I want the curly hair. And the curly hair girl goes, if I could just have straight hair. It blows my mind that we are constantly comparing ourselves all the time with one another. Look at their shoes. Look at their car. Look at their job. Look at their house. We're always comparing with others of the same gender. It's, uh, for women, I call it the Snow White Syndrome. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest beauty of them all? She's not saying, what man out there? No. It's a beautiful woman. That she, and she wants to not only be as beautiful as, but be more beautiful then. And she's driven by the fact that Snow White is more beautiful than she is. And she wants to eliminate it. She's envious of her beauty. She couldn't be in content, the fact that she was beautiful. But she wanted to be the very best. So it's of the same gender, usually. And for men, I mean, there's an, or actually, actually with women, there is a, usually an envying of, uh, could be another's woman's beauty, her body, her fashion, her marital status, her children, her house, how they attend their home, how they decorate, their ability to balance life, job, etc. For men, it plays out a little bit differently. Uh, Men envy strength, respect, power, influence, family, intelligence, abilities, position, possessions, and beards. See if you're paying attention to that one. Just see if you're paying attention. No. Uh, we are envious of those who possess what we believe we secretly deserve. That's the next point. We believe we secretly deserve. So I said it's a secret sin, but it's what we also believe we secretly deserve. See, this is where we see the difference between envy and jealousy. Jealousy most often occurs over the threat of losing something which we have. But envy is wanting something that we believe we secretly deserve and don't have which is not so much about our possessions, 
but who we believe we are. It's about who we believe we are in our core. As Rebecca DeYoung notes, she says, Envy targets the internal qualities of another person. Qualities that give a person worth, honor, standing, or status. If the envious do desire an external thing, it is because that the object symbolizes or signifies its owner's high position or greatness. There is a difference, for example, between wanting a BMW because we are car aficionados and love the driving performance of a particular model and wanting a BMW because it will make us feel superior to our neighbor who just bought a new Camry. But it's not the car that makes us green with envy. So much is what being the owner of such a car says about who we are. So much is, uh, he goes, the personal respect and admiration that we command when we drive up in it. We envy not the car, but the superiority, the classiness of the person driving it. Getting the right car is just a means to that end of being the right person. Not to have the car is not just lack that thing, but to be less of a person. To be deficient or defective. His or, her lack, his or her lack makes the envier feel less lovable, less admirable, less worthy as a person. See, it goes back to the core of who we are. Because it's all about identity. Everything we do, in one way or another, is about who we believe we are or who we want people to think we are. It's about our identity. Something that we secretly deserve. You might believe that you deserve that promotion. Or that pay raise that someone else received. That respect that you see someone else got. You believe that you deserve children like that other family has. You believe that you deserve that house, that car, or that retirement. You believe that you deserve that vacation, or that time away, or that position, or attention. Because it validates the conception you have of yourself. We all do this. See, envy also savors the misery of their competitors. See, in the movie Amadeus, as I referred to before, Salieri was delighted in the fact that Mozart found a hard time finding an audience with a more high class. And he delighted that Mozart was regulated to venues where only the common would go, but yet he was secretly would attend every single performance because he recognized the genius of it. But he wanted and he savored the misery of his competitor. See, what does envy do for us? Absolutely nothing. In fact, it brings a whole bunch of difficulties. We need to see the difficulties envy brings. The difficulties envy brings. Let's look back at our text for a moment. When Rachel, in verse 1, saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, and here you see emphasis, Give me children or I shall die. See, notice what she says. Give me children or I shall die. She comes to him and demands him to give her children, something that he couldn't do. And he admits it in verse 2. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? See, when you have such envy, it leads you to make unrealistic demands of those around you. It makes you make unrealistic demands. I want that. I want you to give me that. And I don't care how you do it or how you go about it. That's what I want. You give it to me. That's what will give me that status. That will help validate who I am as a person. And we make unrealistic demands, demands that people around us cannot possibly meet. And not only does it lead to unrealistic demands, 
it leads to violent disagreements. I mean, it says right here in verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled. This was a husband and wife, all-out brawl fight. I mean, you ever had one of those with your spouse? You ever had one of those? Those who are older are smiling because you've had many of those over your years. You have those fights. Couples fight. That's what they do. Not all the time. You have to fight fair. And she lays down the line. And, and he's like, he's angry. He is angry. Matter of fact, it, it, it really emphasizes there's a burning within him, a flaring of the nostrils. He is taken over. I mean, they've been trying to have kids for a while. And he's like, am I in the place of God? I can't do this. And so it leads to a violent disagreement. And when you make those requirements on people to fulfill the desire that you have that is unrealistic, when you're envious of someone trying to get something that you believe will validate your identity, it's going to lead to unrealistic demands, and it's going to lead to violent disagreements. But that is not all. Look at verse 3. Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may uh, give birth on my behalf, and even, uh, that even I may have children through her. See, Bilhah was a servant that had been given to her when she got married to Jacob by her wealthy uncle Laban. And whenever a woman couldn't have children in the ancient world, such as Rachel, it was often customary in the ancient world to bring in a new woman who would act as a surrogate of sorts. This woman would give birth. Uh, she would lie with the, the master. And be uh, not a wife per se, but uh, considered to be a lesser wife, sometimes even referred to as a concubine. Sometimes while uh, the woman would give birth, sometimes even while sitting upon the woman who was considered uh, her master, and the child that would then be considered the masters of the, the master woman. It, was not, it wasn't from Scripture at all, but something that she did out of desperation, and that's something that the peoples around them often did. It's an irrational decision. See, when we are unwilling to live within the parameters that God has placed us, we will seek to fulfill our desires in some other ways, and that will inevitably lead to irrational decisions in our lives. Think about it. When you envy something, you will spare no expense to get it, whether that means getting into a mortgage you can't afford, perhaps a car payment beyond your ability to pay, student loan debt in a profession that will pay nothing, or massive credit card debt to get what you feel you deserve that validates how you feel about yourself, that makes you look like everyone else around. You will pay for it. See, when envy takes over, it's hard to focus on, and our decision-making becomes skewed. We all, every single one of us, have to do a heart check to make sure that we're not going beyond our means, which is very hard in our 21st century world. See, in many other cultures, it's not the, the plenty, it's the lack thereof. But when we have plenty, then we start comparing ourselves with one another, and we want what everyone else has. I see that played out with my family. I see that played out with my kids. They see their friends, what they have at school. I want that. See what they have? I'm the only one that doesn't have that. And, and the reality is sometimes we, 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 you know, we feel our child's pain, and we, we can close it out a little bit. But the reality is, is we feel that ourselves in our everyday lives. We see what our neighbor has. We see what our coworkers have. And we want that. We want that. And what happens is, after we make these rational decisions, it leads to increased dysfunction. Increased dysfunction. See, bringing in Bilhah didn't bring any real solution. It only complicated matters between the women. It escalated the contest. 
Bilhah bore two sons for Jacob as a surrogate for Rachel. She even went so far as to slight her sister in the naming of her sons. The first son, Dan, has a name that means God is my judge. She's saying, God is my judge between me and my sister. That's what your name is, Dan, by the way. Mom, why did you name me Dan? Because God judged me between me and your aunt. That's what it was. It was a contest. Notice it goes even further after that. She wanted God to judge between her and Leah. And the second son, Naphtali, it means rustling. For it says that she had been rustling in conflict with her sister and felt she prevailed. She beat her sister. It's, it's just like little kids. I win. Ha ha. That's what it is. It's played out on the adult level with much more painful consequences. It's escalating. And when you envy something, there is an, that is an, an inevitable byproduct. And now that Rachel had sons and Leah had stopped having kids, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob, who bore him two more sons. The competition was becoming more and more fierce, enabling the dysfunction to get bigger and bigger. Notice what happens next in verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. See, Rachel's envy of her sister and her desire for children led her to make a painful deal. She was willing to make a painful deal. She's saying, you know what? He can sleep with you tonight. That ought to be painful. I'm sure that the man that she loved and she knew loved her was going in to sleep with her sister was not a good feeling. It's painful. That's the most intimate connection that you can have. And no, she was considered his wife. I'm sure that every time that he went to her, that broke her her heart. And yet she's willing to negotiate in order to get these mandrakes that she believed would help increase her fertility. So she was willing to make a painful deal. She was bargaining her husband away for some mandrakes. She was letting her husband go to her sister for her that night. It's very, it had to have been very painful, you know, because that's what envy does. It leads to pain. See, there's a story, uh, about that, that the former pastor, Ray Pritchard, tells of two shopkeepers who were bitter rivals. He says their stores were across the street from one another, and they spent their days sitting in the doorway, keeping track of who had the most customers. If one got a customer, he would smile and triumph at the other. One night, an angel appeared to one of the shopkeepers and said, God has sent me to teach you a lesson. He will give you anything you ask for. But I want you to know that whatever you get, your competitor across the street will get twice as much as you. Would you like wealth? Ask what you will, only he will get twice as much. Do you want a long and happy life? It's yours, but he will live twice as long. You can be famous. Your children can be famous, whatever you desire. But whatever you get it, he will get twice as much. The man frowned, thought for a moment, and said, All right, my request is this. Make me blind in one eye. See, that's what envy does. It doesn't delight in what you have. It's, having, it's delighting it to have more than the other person or want what that other person has. And it is so pervasive within our culture. It doesn't know profession. It doesn't know education. It doesn't know status. It can happen in the, the most faraway village or it can happen in the, the biggest penthouse. It's having more than the other person. 
or wanting more than the other person. The envious person will willingly suffer and make painful deals in order to accomplish their goal and hurt that other person so that they alone will benefit. That's what envy does and truly how perverse it is. What about us? What about you? What about me? What will you do to see someone else suffer? What deal would you make or have you made so that you will benefit but so that others will be brought down? What about at your work? Are you willing to sacrifice your integrity to one-up somebody? Or maybe in that marriage or dating relationship that ended, you will do all kinds of things to hurt them and make yourself feel good in the process. We see that going on in our world today with those who have broken up relationships and you're seeing this new criteria called revenge porn where people will take pictures of someone that hurt them, that spouse in a very compromising situation to hurt them, to bring them down because it looks like that person who's gone on is happy. And they can't stand to see that other person's happiness or to be without them. That's what it does. Envy is a cruel, is cruel and a grueling master. And it also leads us away from God to superstitious delusions. Superstitious delusions. See, notice what Rachel does. She believes that these mandrakes, which were believed to have magical properties that helped cure disease and helped in infertility. It was based on superstition and not fact. She was looking for the silver bullet that would help her out. She wasn't seeking God's favor or crying out to him as much as she was relying on her own, finding her own solution. See, that's what envy does. It will turn to anything and everything to accomplish its goal rather than God. It might be gambling, lotto, increased debt, astrology, medicine men or mediums or psychics, something we must not and cannot do. And lastly, it also leads us to rationalizing our disobedience rationalizing our disobedience. Look at verse 17 and 18 for a moment. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Now, God listened to her. God granted her the request to have another son. But here's what she does. She rationalizes it in a different way. She says, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. That's not why that God did that. God listened to her request and her prayer, not because she negotiated a deal in order to get children, See, God heard Leah's cries, but she rationalized that it wasn't because of her prayer, but because she gave her servant to her husband. For her, it was a sacrifice. For God says, no, it's about obedience. He wants our obedience, not our sacrifice. She was rationalizing her choice, rationalizing that God was behind it. As a pastor, I've seen many people rationalize bad purchases for their car, their home, why they need to be in that relationship or to be living with their future spouse. And I am amazed at the amount of rationalizations we are willing to go through to justify our own sinful choices. And that's exactly what she did. She was trying to find a way to bring God into her choice when he wasn't really behind that choice. God does not ordain evil to happen. It's against his nature. He does allow it, however, to accomplish his purposes. He was not behind her choice, although she rationalized that he was. That's what envy does. It causes us to rationalize our disobedience when we want someone, what else, someone else has. When we want to be married and are willing to settle for the first person who will pay us attention. Or when we go into that depth to get what we want, we rationalize and say that was God's will behind it. We must turn away from such rationalizations. Now, how do we handle envy if we have it in our life? I'm going to go through these rather quickly. First of all, I mean, we have to understand there's a new direction we need to take. We have to live differently. 
as Christians especially, and, and this can happen, by the way, in churches. We can rationalize what we want in churches all the time, too, and we always must be on guard because it can so easily creep in. First of all, the first step is this. We have to resolve our identity crisis. Envy, more than almost any other sin in my mind, and it, and it really can go to any of the seven deadly sins, but envy is an identity sin through and through. It is a lack of understanding who we are in Christ, and we don't see his sufficiency in our identity. We find our security and our significance in our status and our possessions and what other people have rather than who we are in Jesus. We compete against one another. We see that played out even with the disciples. When Jesus is restoring Peter after his resurrection, remember, Peter had denied the Lord. Peter three times and restores him. He sees John walk by, and he says, What about him, Lord? What about him? It's competing even there with the disciples. There it is. What about him? And he goes, Never mind about him. If I want him to stay around until I come back, that's up to me. You follow me. You do what I have called you to do, not what I've called him to do. His blessing is not your blessing. It is different. Understand that. Resolve to be following me. You are accountable to me and me alone. That's what God does with us. We see that drawn out with the parable of the the talents and all the men that come and work. Uh, Remember with the master. And he promises them each a talent. There's some that show up in the morning. And then there's some that he goes out and sees more workers standing around for work. And they show up at noon. And then he goes out around 3 or 4 o'clock. And they're working until about 5. And he says, hey, there's still no work for you? And they say, no, no one's hired us. He says, come and work for me. And then he begins with the... the, uh, the older ones and the new ones, I mean, he's paying both of them, and he gives them each a denarius. And the people that have been working all day long are like, hey, we've been working all day. He goes, why are you frustrated with my generosity? I told you what I was going to give you. Are you jealous? Are you envious of what I've given to them? I promised you both the same thing. See, we're to find contentment. We can't compare ourselves with one another, but we have to resolve our identity crisis before God that we find our security and our significance in and through Christ alone. It's not about our race. It's not about our, our gender. It's not about our accomplishments or our education or the house that we have or the position we have, our strength, our beauty, none of those other things. And our identity has to be in Christ. When we realize that we are his servants, that changes things. That changes things. And even then, there's still that temptation, as we see within the disciples, to envy someone else. So it begins with resolving our identity crisis. Secondly, we must repent of our envy. You have to recognize it for what it is and turn away from it. You have to fight it. It begins, uh, we can't make any progress until we recognize envy for what it really is. And here's what it really is. It's the belief that God didn't give us what we deserve. See, unlike several other sins, this one is a direct smack in God's face because it believed that God didn't give us what we believe we deserved. The third step requires us to renew our minds. Renew our minds. This is straight out of Romans chapter 12. See, we can't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we must be transformed, excuse me, by the renewing of our minds. We will never progress in who we are in Christ and step into maturity without a steady and sustained diet of God's Word. God's Word is the windshield wiper that keeps the bugs of the world off from clouding our vision, and the Holy Spirit is the wiper fluid that keeps it wet and keeps it wiped away. See, God's, use God's Word to renew your mind, remind you of who God is, who you are in Him, and what He has for you. Fourthly, the next step we need to take is for us to resist the temptation to compare. 
that's where the problem starts, when we start comparing ourselves with other people. It's when we compare with others that envy happens and contentment flees. This goes back to finding our identity with Christ. When we know we are in Christ, we're not so concerned about other people and being like them. Fifthly, the next step requires us to recognize the blessings we have. See, Rachel couldn't find rest in the fact that Jacob loved her, and Leah couldn't find rest in the fact that she had children. They each wanted what the other one had, and they didn't have. But when we stop and recognize what we do have, that changes our perspective. I may not have what they have, but it doesn't matter. I have what I have, and I'm happy with what God has given me. Envy does blind us because it's so focused on what it doesn't have that it can't see what it does. We have to recognize the blessings that we have. When we resist the temptation to compare, then we can turn our focus on what we have, and contentment is not far away. And lastly, then we can rejoice in the blessings of others. Rejoice in the blessings of others. When we realize that the psalmist's words are true in Psalm 16.6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That's in Psalm 16.6 when he says, hey, I'm happy with what I have. It reminds me, and I want to conclude with this story. Uh, I'm a basketball fan. And uh, I've been very paying close attention to Steph Curry, one of the most amazing basketball players I've ever seen in my entire life. This guy's phenomenal. And he plays for the Golden State Warriors, and he's a Christian. And they had the best record in the entire league. He was the MVP uh, by far and away, just an amazing, amazing player. And one of the things that struck me, though, is that uh, this past offseason, they brought in one of the other best players in the league, a guy by the name of Kevin Durant. They convinced him to take millions of dollars left to play on this team. And what Curry said to him to draw him in, he said this. He goes, With, without you, we can win championships. With you, we can, I mean, he goes, without you, we can win a championship. With you, we can win championships. And I'll tell you right now, I don't care if you get all the accolades and I don't. If you get the MVP and I don't, you know what? I'm going to be sitting in the front row applauding you on. I'm going to be cheering for you and what, what's going on through you. If you're the scoring leader, if you're the best player on a given night, I'm going to be there applauding. But together, we're going to accomplish more. See, for him, it wasn't about the individual accolades. See, with, with us, when we're in the kingdom of God, we say, hey, look at God, bless that person to do that. It's not about me. It's about God and accomplishing his mission to make his kingdom known and being a faithful steward with what he has had. And when we understand that, we can rejoice in the blessings that God has given to other peoples. I am thankful that God gave you that job. I am praising him for what he has done with that position where he's given you that. And, I, and I, God bless you for that. Let's celebrate together. Because we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're also to weep with those who weep. But when we understand that, we can rejoice in the blessings of others. Let's give up our envy. We have to let it go. Matter of fact, we have to go further than that. We have to kill it. It was envy of Jesus that led the Pharisees to press for his execution. Envy leads to death. It doesn't matter what you are, where you go, what you do, whether it's you're a singer, you're an instrumentalist, you're an athlete, whether you're a great business person, whether you're great with people or languages or whatever it might be. We can be envious of someone, but we have to let it go. And remember Jesus who gave himself on the cross for you, dying the death that you deserve so that you might have new life in him. And through his name, we can have salvation. He was more than a prophet, more than a teacher, but the incarnate son of God who offers himself for us. But he also offers a life of denial, a life of sacrifice, but a life of eternal significance when we turn to him. We shouldn't wait. We have to give ourselves over 
get to receive that forgiveness for him and allow him to be our identity. Because as Colossians says, he is our life. He does direct us. And then allow him to work in and through us for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, help us to forsake this green-eyed monster. Because, Lord, when we start comparing ourselves to other people, then we will become a lot like Salieri was. And we recognize what others have, and we feel our lack so much so that we begin to blame you. Lord, help us not to do such things. Help us to repent of that, to look to Jesus as our example. Lord, that he, for him, it wasn't about status or power because he humbled himself. Help us to humble ourselves in the same way. Help us to delight in the blessings you place upon others' lives. Lord, help us to forsake envy and all of the difficulties and uh, destruction and death that it even brings in its wake. And Lord, help us to find our contentment in you, not to compare ourselves with others, but to find our delight in you and in you alone. Because you will show us who we are in you. You will give us significance. You will give us purpose. You will show us uh, that we have been forgiven and that we have our life, a new life, in and through you. So be with us, guide us, and use us. We ask your blessing upon us now. In Jesus' name, amen.